You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. your first-time guest. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. We're very glad to have you with us. We are continuing our study of the book of Philippians, and I'm excited about our time for this morning. Uh, So here's the thing about the Bible. It is so powerful that anyone can pick it up and learn truths about God. But my favorite genre description of the Bible is that it is meditation literature, which means that it doesn't give up its secrets upon first reading. Rather, it takes a lifetime of study and meditation to plumb the depths. Also, many sections of Scripture, like Paul's letter to the Philippians, were written to a specific people at a specific time. So in order to most fully understand the weight of the words, you have to understand how they would have heard them. So the passage today we'll cover is a good example of that. Uh, You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians 1, 27 through 30. We will read these verses first, then go look at the background of how the original hearers would have heard them and go back through them. So uh, we'll read the passage in just a moment. If you would, join me uh, to pray for our time this morning. Father, I pray that you would uh, speak supernaturally through your spirit and through your word this morning. Uh, I know that I have nothing uh, in and of myself to sustain the souls of those you've gathered here this morning, so I pray that you would do so like only you can, that you would speak like only you can. You would encourage and equip our souls um, with the truth, from your word. God, help us in all the ways we need it. Be with us this morning. We love you. Amen. All right, starting in verse 27, Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So there's a lot that we could talk about there. As a 21st century American Christian, I see themes of unity in the gospel there. I see standing firm in opposition to opponents. I see the expectation of suffering I would be interested in hearing a good sermon on any of those things. I'm not saying I could preach a good sermon, but I'd be interested in hearing one. What I want to do today, though, is walk through the founding of the Philippian church and look at what we find thinking through the lens of what is the original hearer hearing when they hear this passage. So first, we'll talk about the context of Philippi. The founding of the Philippian church is found in Acts 16. Uh, Paul has a vision one night while sleeping where a man from a region of Macedonia urges him to come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul's interpretation of this vision, it says, is that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they set sail to heed this call, and they wind up in the city of Philippi, which Acts says is a Roman colony. And here's where we need to do a little bit of work. So at this time, Rome was the most powerful empire on earth. It is said it points to stretch from England all the way to India. And to be sure, it was an empire that spread through the sword. But over time, as it gained more control, it trumpeted what it called Pax Romana, or Roman peace. And when you and I hear about empires, we think of 
brute force and oppression and taking things by force. And to be sure, there was a lot of that. But you also have to remember that this was a pre-modern, warring, barbaric compared to us time. So for millions of people who were brought under the Roman Empire, this was a profound relief. It was good news to be brought under the protection of the Roman Empire. Roman citizenship brought with it profound benefits for this time. It brought legal rights and protections. It brought monetary privilege through taxation status. It brought safety and security. At this point in history, you didn't mess with Rome. So Philippi is a Roman colony, meaning its people have been granted Roman citizenship. The city was actually populated by a majority of veterans who fought in the many wars that advanced Roman territory. So these people are set up to be quite loyal to the empire. And loyalty bordering on worship was required. As the Roman Empire progressed by the time that this letter is written, the Caesars or emperors actually thought of themselves as gods. There was a saying known to all people groups in and around the stretches of Rome, the Roman Empire, which simply went, Caesar is Kyrios or Caesar is Lord. There was another saying that went, there is no name under heaven by which men can be saved other than Caesar. Those sound familiar to you? In a meaningful way, people actually understood being a part of the Roman Empire as a form of salvation. And speaking of familiar terms, the word translated as gospel in the New Testament and in these verses is the Greek word euangelion. And in origin, it is not a uniquely Christian word. It was used as a military or political term that broadly meant heralding good news about a king. So the picture would be that when there was a transition of power, these messengers would run all over the empire. They didn't have Twitter back then. So the messengers would scatter all over the empire to these towns and colonies, and they would say, Octavian is Lord, Tiberius is Lord, Nero is Lord. And this was cause for rejoicing because it meant the empire is still intact and in power, and they are still safe. So all of this is the context for Philippi. This is the political and societal backdrop. And now let's look at what we know about the people of the Philippian church. Acts 16 gives us three people who were definitely or possibly converted in Philippi back to back to back. The first is a wealthy businesswoman named Lydia. And some scholars think that her house, being that she could afford a nice villa back in the day, was likely the home of the Philippian church. The second is a demonized slave girl. And she made her money by doing magic tricks for her owners. But she, and I quote, greatly annoyed Paul. I've always loved that, that even Paul gets greatly annoyed. So he gets greatly annoyed by her and he casts the demon out of her. She possibly was converted as well, we don't know, but she was definitely freed from demonic oppression. And her owners get really mad at this because Paul just destroyed their income stream. He took away the magic trick she was doing. So they drug him in front of the magistrates and claimed that, listen to this, these Jewish men are advocating customs that are unlawful for Romans to practice. They are messing with the empire and the structures of the empire. And for this, they were beaten by the empire, by an angry crowd with rods. And then they were taken away to the inner jail. And in jail, we find the third story. 
A supernatural earthquake happens and it frees all the prison bars and loosens the shackles. And this part also ties into life in the Roman Empire because the Philippian jailer woke up from the earthquake, rubble assumedly all around him, and he saw that the prison doors were open. And this man, who we will find out later, has a family. Still in response to seeing this, draws his sword and is about to kill himself because he knows he will be killed for failing to keep the prisoners. Evidently, an earthquake wasn't a good enough excuse here. But verse 28 of Acts 16 says, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Remember the phrase known all around the empire? There's no name under heaven by which men can be saved other than Caesar. And this is a profound moment because here we have a Roman jailer, not just a citizen, but a man who works for Caesar, realizing that he is in fact not saved by Caesar. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. Believe in the Lord Jesus, the true king of the universe, and you will be saved. You and your family whom you were about to leave widowed and orphaned. Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. I'd like to just stop and think about this picture for a moment because I don't know how many Roman jailers you've interacted with, but this is the kind of man whom, if you find yourself in a back alley, you want him to be on your side. This is, man is an enforcer of the empire. He is likely a hardened man who has numbed himself to chaining and imprisoning and possibly torturing criminals. He has hard, calloused hands and very likely a heart of the same nature just by necessity of the job. And here he is getting into a body of water, likely a river, to be baptized. But first, he washes the wounds of Paul and Silas in the river. The wounds that they had from being beat by the empire he enforced. He went from locking the stocks around their feet to washing their rod-inflicted wounds. This is the type of transformation possible with Jesus, the kind that just stuns you as you watch sore and aching Paul and Silas in the river, baptizing a hardened agent of the state and the rest of his family. So that gives us a fuller picture of who exactly Paul is talking to years later when he writes this letter what experiences they share, what statuses they share. We have Lydia, an international businesswoman, the formerly demonized slave girl who is possibly converted. We have a radically changed and softened jailer. Who knows what other converts have joined the church by now, but judging from the start, we can probably safely conclude that this gathering is one of the most diverse places in Philippi. It's likely that little church was still meeting at Lydia's house and with a concentration of veterans in the city and, and a jailer missionary, who knows how many more of that ilk are now brought into the flock? They would likely meet on Sunday evening 
open the Jewish scriptures and have someone teach before they sing and share a meal of bread and wine together? Until this one week comes along when they show up and someone reports that there has been a letter from Paul. And someone that night would stand up and read the letter in its entirety to encourage and strengthen the believers gathered there. So with all of that in mind, let's go back through the passage and see if we can more clearly discern what they would have felt. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The part translated as let your manner of life is actually just one word in the Greek, and it more directly means live as a citizen. Live as a citizen of the gospel of Christ. So at this point in the letter, they hear something that strikes them far more deeply than it strikes us. This is essential because when I hear the word citizenship, it doesn't move me very much, if I'm honest. I'm very grateful to be a citizen of America, but that word just, it doesn't make me feel warm inside. It just feels kind of, okay. So when I hear live as a citizen, I'm like, okay, okay, pay my taxes, I guess. What, what else do you want me to do? But for them, it was everything. And they knew exactly what it meant. It meant that their foundational allegiance had to change. Their foundational allegiance had to change. Paul is saying, all of you Roman citizens, that, that special identity that makes you privileged and protected, that is no longer your primary identity or your primary allegiance. Instead, live as citizens of the gospel of King Jesus. This is not just flowery spiritual language for them. This is eye-raising stuff. Citizens is a loaded word. Gospel is a loaded word. These are not frivolous details. He's saying, live as citizens of the euangelion of Christ. Live under his rule, not Caesar's. Go and proclaim his lordship, not Caesar's. We don't know the exact circumstances of Paul's death, but tradition has it that he gets out of jail after he pens this letter to the Philippians from his jail cell in Rome. But then a few years later, that he actually gets sent back to prison in Rome, and this time that he is beheaded by Nero, believed to be the emperor at the time. And the reason that happened is because Paul would not stop saying things like this and telling others to live like this. In chapter two, Paul will say that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. That is treason on paper. That is a death sentence at this time. It likely would have silenced the room when it was read aloud. In our context, things like this may strike us as nice, kind of vague spiritual platitudes. But for the original audience, it was a thunderclap statement full of meaning, application, and cost. They knew what was at stake for Paul and for themselves as well. Live as citizens of the good news that Christ is the true king. Tell everyone that he is the incarnate son of God, not Caesar, who came to earth as the Messiah, the promised one 
that he lived a perfect, sinless, radiant human life that is pure enough to cover all of our impurities and sins. And not only that, but he died for our sins to pay the price that we deserved. And he rose from the dead three days later to defeat sin and hell and death for good. And he is now ascended to the right hand of the Father, crowned as king of the universe. And he commands everyone to bow down to him. There's salvation in no other name under heaven by which men can be saved other than Jesus. Believe this, say this, proclaim this, Paul says, even if it kills you. And it did just that for him, according to tradition, and possibly for some who were reading these words at Sunday night church in Philippi. Let's keep reading. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So Rome was a powerful unifying force. It held together meaningful group benefits and dynamics and likely some swagger at the time. Group identification is a deeply embedded part of human nature and we, we naturally gravitate toward those who are like us or who like the same things we do. We are groupish by nature as psychologist Jonathan Haidt says. Paul was likely writing to many Roman citizens, but possibly a former slave girl too, and maybe others like her because it's estimated that about a third of the empire was enslaved. There was likely some diversity of status, ethnicity, occupation, and finances here. And Paul's instruction is that all of those smaller groups or labels or identifiers, even one as powerful as Rome, is no longer central. They've all now been grafted into a new group a more foundational kingdom, and they are called to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together side by side for the spread of the good news that Jesus alone is king, and he's king of all nations, all empires, all galaxies. So just imagine the different people sitting around the room hearing this letter read aloud. Maybe they are all still at Lydia's house and you know, poor people have a tendency to, to sneer at the privileges of the rich people. Some of them enjoy the massive benefits of Roman citizenship and others have to pay taxes out of their income to support the empire that they, give, they get no benefits from. Lydia has likely benefited from the structures of the empire and if the slave girl is there, she's been nothing but oppressed by the empire. And Paul says, all of you, you are now one in Christ. Verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So we don't know exactly who the opponents are that Paul referenced. It's possible with all of the political subversion through this letter that he may be thinking of those who would persecute the church. It would make sense in the juxtaposition of those who were destroyed and those who were saved because many Christians alive at this time would end up being martyred for their faith. Their bodies would, le would be physically destroyed, but the irony is they were saved for all eternity. Meanwhile, the ones doing the destroying thought themselves to be saved by the Roman Empire, but their end actually was destruction. And this proved prophetic because let me ask you this. Where's the Roman Empire today? Does anyone know? 
For the people reading this letter, Rome felt like a bedrock certainty. Caesar Caesar being on the throne felt like a given, but we can see something from our vantage point that they couldn't. Namely, what was the Roman Empire like again? Who was Caesar? There was more than one of them, I gather. What history book might I find information about these supposedly powerful people? How many people are in the Christian church today And how many belong to the Roman Empire? Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. We'll wrap up with the last encouragements from Paul in this section. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So these people understood that citizenship was a privilege. It was good news, something to rejoice over. And if you remember the Philippian jailer, when he was converted, it says that he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I love that picture. It's like, look at me. I believed in God. I didn't think I was going to do that. I didn't expect my Tuesday to go like this. Did not see this coming. But now I've stumbled upon something so stunning, so profound, so undeniably true that I almost have to laugh at the thought. I believed in God. I trusted the good news that Jesus is King, that Jesus is Lord. There's this feeling that this profound fortune has been granted to me that I didn't expect or earn. This is for many of us possibly the way we feel. Like, I did not see my life going like this. Like, look at me, I'm at church on a weekend. I go to life group and I enjoy it most of the time. What happened to me? It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ to believe in him and what a privilege that is. What a remarkable kingdom and destiny to find yourself grafted into. But this profound new citizenship that lasts far longer than Rome has something else that comes along with it. Notice it says, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There are innumerable benefits of believing in the saving work of Jesus and being grafted into his kingdom. Eternal life is just one of them, albeit an important one, but allegiance to King Jesus will cause some suffering in this life. It will bring with it some hardships and some conflict. Paul says, you saw I had the same experience and, and now still have it as I'm locked up in chains in Rome, the seat of the empire, writing you this letter. For Paul, suffering is a privilege too. It is nothing more than following Jesus, the suffering king who conquered sin through a cross and death through a grave. Paul's logic is that if Christ suffered on his way to glory, why should we expect anything different? We don't know what fates the specific individuals in the Philippian house church faced after hearing this letter what choices they came up against, what suffering they endured, but we know that allegiance to Jesus as king was unspeakably costly to many in the early church. And Paul just equipped them with a stunning call to lock arms together in unity as a church in aggressive allegiance to King Jesus, come whatever may. 
And I realized that we do not live in first century Rome, and that's the reason why we needed to do the background work we did today. The, the context for us is different, but the call is the same. Live as citizens of the gospel of the king. So with this historical context in view, we'll, we'll spend the remainder of our time quickly discussing three markers of citizenship and how they apply to us. Number one, allegiance to the king. Allegiance to the king. The same test they had applies to us. Where does our citizenship lie? Do we actually accept Jesus as Lord and not just a life coach? Are we willing to swear allegiance to him when some other force demands it? <clears throat> we have the same pressures on us to conform to our time and place. It comes to us in different forms than it did for the Romans, but it's really the same because when we fit in, there are social privileges we accrue as well. When we say the right things that fit the times, people accept us. And there is profound pressure in that. I do not want people to think badly of me. I do not want people to reject me or dismiss me. Just like with Rome, there are special privileges that come with being allegiant to the dominant narrative of secular democracy. There are rewards for that. And forsaking allegiance to that kingdom and all of its values will have some costs. It likely won't cost you your life here, thankfully, but that doesn't mean the costs aren't real and meaningful. A secular empire that vows for our attention has a bit of a different twist than Caesar and Rome because it tells us there actually is no king and we must primarily be allegiant to ourselves. You get to decide what you like and what you don't like, what's true and what's not. And this is a powerful shaping influence that affects us in ways we can't possibly see. But when the New Testament says Jesus is Lord, it means all of that is vapid, nonsensical foolishness. There might be things about the Bible you find difficult. Me too. Being honest, me too. There may be things you find hard to obey. I'm with you. Me too. But I want you to hear this because I might be the only place you hear it from. None of those things are primary considerations. None of them are. They're, they're important and worthy to discuss for sure, but they are not primary. What's primary is the question, is Jesus the Son of God who died for your sins, rose from the dead, and declared himself king of the universe? If he is, then our first response is to join with all of the created world, hit a knee, bow our heads, and confess with our self-obsessed tongues that he alone is Lord. Our allegiance is to him. Number two, precedence of the kingdom as my primary group. Just like in Philippi, we exist in a place with many different affiliations and subgroups. We have economic differences, political differences, ethnic differences, personality differences, sports allegiance differences, amen? Amen. We are all groupish too, and we naturally gravitate toward people who are like us, who like the same things we do, who like the same teams we do. Part of this is human nature, and it's not necessarily wrong. But the problem comes when we over-identify with our other affiliations. Like, sure, I'm a Christian, I go to church, but my real group 
as my nuanced political tribe or whatever group you'd fill in that blank with. Those are the people I have the most in common with. That's where I really most fully belong. Every empire tries to get you to conform using the means they have to shape you. And our current context tends to do this through perfectly personalized media where bots choose what to show you next on your phone based on what you've already proven to click on because your phone knows what you love. It knows where your primary allegiances lie. And this over-identification with groups is exactly what Paul is confronting. The rich businesswoman, the former slave girl, the rough jailer, they all had their affiliations too. They had their groupishness. The people they gravitated to, the group that in some instances might look at others in their house church and identify them as the problem. And Paul says, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Different people, one spirit. Different affiliations and groups, one mind. Striving together side by side for the gospel. So I'm not trying to take away all of our other group identities. I'm just saying that allegiance to Jesus as king means his people are now my people, my primary group. And when other affiliations compete, this one wins every time. So if you are in Christ, you have more in common with the fellow Christians in your church community than you do with whatever group you feel most at home in. Even with all of our differences, we put on our new citizenship and we lock arms together to herald good news about King Jesus. You have different opinions on things that I deeply care about? That's fine. We can talk about that later if we have time, but it's not a priority. You voted differently than me? Maybe I'll ask you why at some point, but uh, you were my people in the most important sense, no matter who you voted for. You have a different personality wiring than I normally like being around? That doesn't matter. We're people. You're the type of person who I would never be friends with outside of Jesus. What a miracle we find then as we lock arms together for the sake of the gospel and realize that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. And lastly, number three, willingness to suffer for the sake of the kingdom. Every nation or empire has had people who sacrificed for it. Think of the countless soldiers who died making America what it is today. Think of the many veterans that lived in Philippi who fought for the advance of Caesar's power. Sometimes citizens are called to step up and do something really, really difficult for the sake of the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom is no different. He was made king through intense suffering, and the scriptures tell us that we will follow him into the same sacrifice and hardship. This was most certainly true for the early Christians in these cities. Emperor Nero, who it's believed uh, beheaded Paul, was famously hostile toward Christians. In the year 64 AD, a great fire broke out in Rome, and in order to deflect blame, he unfairly blamed the Christians. It was an easy thing to do, a scapegoat. Writing about this time of persecution for Christians, Roman historian Tacitus wrote, a vast multitude were not only put to death, but put to death with insult, and that they were either dressed up in the skins of beasts to perish by the worrying of dogs, 
or else put on crosses to be set on fire, and when the daylight failed to be burned for use as lights by night. Nero had thrown open his gardens for that spectacle and was giving a circus exhibition. Not only to believe in him, but to also to suffer for his sake, Paul said. Historian Seneca, speaking of the same, said, In the midst of the flame and the rack, I have seen them smile, and smile with a good heart. These were men and women willing to suffer for the sake of Jesus' kingdom, who refused to recant or deny allegiance to Jesus because they had their eyes on a more lasting kingdom. And praise God that I don't see that in our cards here in our country. But citizenship calls us to the same sacrifice, the same allegiance, to do the hard thing, to be faithful to Jesus, even though they may think you're weird, to lead the life group, to take that really difficult step out of love for others, to give away the money you'd like to keep, to adopt the kid or be a foster parent, to risk being alienated from your subgroups because you're most aligned with God's people, to volunteer at Kidstown even though you're with your kids all week. Amen, parents? And maybe most simply, to obey Jesus as king. Even when it doesn't make sense to you, even when you don't want to the empire we belong to has essentially framed obedience as injustice. We are taught that to deny ourselves and our desires is repressive. It's injustice, that any outside constraints are evil and wrong, but obedience is not an injustice. It's a sacrifice, but it's not evil. It's not an injustice. And biblically speaking, the irony is it's actually for your good and joy and flourishing. And it's also the clearest test of whether or not Jesus is actually king of your life. So I don't know which of these three things you might, may struggle with, whether it's having your foundational allegiance be to Jesus or being more unified with Christians than your other subgroups or uh, being willing to suffer or sacrifice for his kingdom. Whatever it might be, I, I want to end by just pointing our attention to what allowed the New Testament church to live as citizens of the gospel of Jesus in such profound and moving ways. Because Paul's focus, their focus, was not on how hard all of this can be. Rather, their eyes were on their king. So as we wrap up, I just want to point your attention to his life. Do you see the Son of Man having no place to lay his head? Do you see him being despised and hated for no reason? Do you see him being falsely accused? Do you see him sweating drops of blood, knowing the pain that is coming his way, but still submitting to the Father's will? Do you see him being beaten and tortured and ridiculed? Do you see the king of distant galaxies hanging on a cross with a sign above mocking him, repeating the claim that he's king of the Jews? This was the coronation path for Jesus. 
He rose victorious over sin, death, and hell. And Revelation says, our king now rides a white horse and he glows like lightning and has the voice of a waterfall. He died, but he will never die again. His kingdom is here. It is spreading through all nations and lands and ages, and it will be here far after the empires of Rome and America are dust. Those of us in Christ will be there too. That is our home and our eternal citizenship, but our path will be the same as his through living as citizens of this king here and now and accepting any difficulty that comes with it knowing that however weighty they feel right now, one day they will appear light and momentary, a small cost for such a glorious and unending kingdom that will outlive the sun.